You guys ready to start? Let's do it. 12.30 on the dot, according to my watch. So welcome, glad you're here, especially if this is your first time. Uh, we wanna welcome you, we do this every Tuesday. And as always, uh, Ruth Chris is generous enough to provide the food, I provide the teaching, you keep the seats warm. So it's a fair deal, I think. Um, no, but we do, this is all uh, ministry uh, driven, so the donations here go straight to the kitchen staff to, for the, the work that they do in preparing the food each week. So we always tell people, they say, how much should I give? Say, give what you think it's worth. Uh, for some of you, that'd be a, you're able to give more. For some, not as much, but that's okay. Uh, because everybody here, no matter what you're giving, you're still welcome. And we appreciate having you here. So also, if you weren't here last week, we've now got, uh, we've got cards printed up that tell about this podcast uh, and video that we do. That's why we're recording each week. It goes up on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. So people that can't come or those of you that are traveling, you know, you miss a week. This is a con uh, consecutive Bible study. So if you miss a chapter, no big deal. Hop on 30 minutes and you catch up with uh, the week's study. If you just started coming, we're in the book of Numbers. So if you're thinking, well, a lot of ha stuff happened before Numbers, yes, it did. You can catch it all on the podcast. You can go back. It's archived, all of it, absolutely free. So take advantage of that. But the challenge that I have for you guys <clears throat> is to take these cards, at least five, and put them in the hands of someone and invite them to subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel, or preferably both, doesn't matter if they listen or not, just make them subscribe. But the point is that <clears throat> that helps us increase the listeners, which eventually, we're not there yet, but eventually that could be able to them, we could have some revenue coming from the podcast, which would help with all of this in funding it, because Disciple Dojo is, is a donor-driven ministry. Uh, along that line, along those lines, if you do want to contribute to help keep this thing going, uh, I have an iPad here that's linked to our homepage or our donations page. You can become a donor dojo donor uh, for a monthly gift starting as low as like $10 a month all the way up to $1,000 a month. Um, so you should all give $1,000 a month, clearly. You'll be blessed exceedingly if you do. No, none of that. No prosperity gospel here. Uh, you could give $1,000 a month and you may end up like Job and have everything taken away from you. No promises, but that's not why you give. No, but the point is there's ways to help this ministry. And I mention it now because we're about to shift I'm about to shift in how we're doing things with our ministry, Disciple Dojo. We're a full nonprofit, and I'll be meeting with the board in a few weeks. We're going to start, we're going to make eventually, hopefully in the next month or two when the new website launches, all of the teaching material uh, courses that I teach, we're going to make those available free for digital download so people, or streaming so people can watch it. They don't have to buy DVDs or any of that stuff. We want to make all of the content free. The only way to do that, though, is if we have regular donors that are saying, hey, we like what you're doing and we want to help you make all of this stuff free because then it increases the reach worldwide and we're able to put everything on YouTube and on the website and it's just a way to minister beyond uh, just who can buy the curriculum and the DVDs and things like that. So anyway, if you have questions about that and want to talk to me or you want to talk to me about being a donor or whatever, but you've got to run, no worries. If you want to make a donation today afterwards, you can through our uh, PayPal site. Um, but let's get into numbers because that's why you're here. That and the food. And you've already had the food. So we've, Numbers 21, last week we looked at the beginning of Numbers 21. Snakes on a pole, right? Jesus 
alluded to this weird event where God judged His people but then provided them a means of salvation from that judgment. <coughs> and it involved looking at the very thing that they deserved or that, that was killing them. And we saw how that ties into the cross and how the very thing that people deserved, which was death, which was execution, which is what the Roman cross was, Jesus, uh, that was the means by which people are saved. And that's why today we wear crosses on our necks and earrings and just it's become a ubiquitous symbol, but it used to be a very horrible thing, the cross. You didn't even talk about the cross in polite Roman company. It was considered uh, so vulgar. So that's what happened last week. Then, after that, <clears throat> we start in verse 10 of chapter 21. And to set the scene, remember, this is the transition generation. This is the generation that is dying out. Most of them have already died out. And the younger ones are rising up or they're being raised. So this is the generation who were kids or some of them not even born when they left Egypt and will be adults when they enter into the promised land. Now, in order to understand this chapter, because some people find this chapter a little tricky. I'm not going to name names or point to anybody. But some people... <clears throat> no... This is a tricky chapter because it's got a lot of ancient sources in it, and it's, and it's actually the, one of the most studied chapters in Numbers because of how ancient it is, and it mentions extra-biblical sources, and so this chapter interests biblical scholars. But to set the stage, <clears throat> Israel has come out of Egypt, they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years as their judgment, and now they're on their way up the King's Highway, so this would be the Dead Sea area, they're coming up and they're going to come to the top of the Dead Sea, and they're going to cross the Jordan River, which runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. They're going to cross into it, into the Promised Land, and then from there spread out and take the land. Now, why are they doing that? Well, does God like Israel better than the other nations? No. He specifically says all throughout Deuteronomy, I did not do this because of you. I did this because of a promise I made to your ancestor Abraham. Some of you were here three and a half years ago when we were in Genesis. And you remember Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abram and said, if you do this, if you obey me, if you go as I've called you and as you're doing this, I'm going to make you a promise. You're going to have land. You're going to have descendants. You're going to have a nation. You're going to have these blessings. But, and Genesis 15 gives the kicker, it's going to happen 400 years after you die. So Abraham died, was buried, and God said in Genesis 15, so if, you were, if you're a writer in your Bible person, write in your Bible by this chapter, Genesis 15, so you can go back and look at it. God said, in 400 years, your people are going to be oppressed, they're going to be slaves, I'm going to bring them out of that. I'm going to bring them out of slavery, I'm going to bring them into this land where you are, which is the land we're about to enter, and I'm going to give this land to your offspring. But I'm not going to do it now. Why? Because the iniquity which is the, the, the heaviest Hebrew word for sin, the iniquity of the Amorites, which is a generic term for the people in that land, has not yet reached its full measure. So what God said, and as we saw back in Genesis 15, again, you can hop on the podcast or the YouTube video and check it out. God said, if I were to give this land to your descendants now, it would be unjust because there are people in it. And those people are not deserving of judgment. But I know that in 400 years they will be. Their iniquity will have filled up. Have you ever flushed a clogged toilet and it keeps filling up, right? And all that muck and all that grossness. I know this is a good lunch discussion. 
rises and you're sitting there thinking, please don't, please don't, please don't. And if it's an older toilet, like one of those, not one of those low flow, but like the old school ones that are just, it'll just keep coming and then it just bubbles over and your bathroom is a mess. That's the image of God, not toilets, but something filling up of the God and the Amorites is their iniquity, their sin is building and building and building. And in 400 years, it's going to be overflowing. And at that point, that is when I will bring your offspring, your descendants, into this land. And they will be the means by which I clean up the land. Last time humanity polluted the land, God sent a flood and washed the land clean back in Genesis 6-9. through And He promised, I'm not going to do it that way anymore. So now, when the land has become polluted through iniquity, through sin, through evil, things like child sacrifice, things like just every imaginable practice you can think of sexually, like all of these things, when it's reached its full measure, God says, I'm not going to send a flood this time. I'm going to send a flood of slaves, ex-slaves, Israelites who've been redeemed from slavery and have become my army. And that's what all of this early part of the book of Numbers has been about, remember? Turning Israel, a rabble of slaves, into a well-formed army, marching in regiments, camped around the tabernacle, which is God at the center. He's turning them into an army. Why? Because they are going to be the flood that He unleashes on the Amorites, on the Canaanites, on the Hittites, on the Perizzites, on the Jebusites. Those seven specific peoples that God mentions back in Genesis. So that's why He doesn't get carte blanche to go attack anybody. It's the specific people who God is sending them to judge. And in the process, if people come and make war on them, God will, if they are in covenant with God, God will fight alongside them and give them victory. That's the promise of the covenant. That's why you'd make a covenant. We saw that in Leviticus and Exodus. Those of you that were here for that, when you make a covenant, a covenant is agreement by a strong person towards a weaker people to say, I'll protect you. You serve me. You give me a tenth of your produce. You, you give me your worship, whatever, and I'll protect you from everything that would threaten you. That's what a covenant did. Well, instead of it being an earthly king who's protecting people from another earthly king, it's the heavenly king protecting them from everybody if they remain in covenant. And the previous generation didn't. This generation now is starting to get it. And they're starting to shed the habits of their forebearers and embrace the covenant identity that God's called them to. I say starting because they don't fully do it. But they're starting to. So that's where we pick up now in chapter 21, verse 10. It says, The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. Now, pause. You know Oboth, so I don't need to explain. No, I'm just kidding. You don't. Uh, <clears throat> all these names in this chapter, they're weird names. And there's a question. And this is where your translations make choices that you don't get a say in. The, a lot of these names, there's a question of whether they're place names or general descriptions. Oboth is a plural term. It means high places. It could be talking about just a general vicinity where there are pagan shrines, which are what high places are. Or it could just be talking about like high places, like hill country. Or it could be the name of a place called Oboth. We don't know. That's why this chapter is so studied by a lot of historians, archaeologists, and, and biblical scholars, because it has a lot of these names that we don't know what they are anymore. So if somebody says, oh yeah, that's here, and they point it to a Bible map, they don't know. They're, they're, they don't know. 
And if they're honest, they'd point to it and say, that's where we think it might be based on whatever, whatever, whatever. But all of these places are largely unknown. But not to Israel at the time. And you'll see what I mean in a second. So they camped Oboth. They set out from Oboth and they camped at Iye Abarim. Now this is where these Old Testament words, your eyes start glazing over. It's like that with the genealogies too. You read it, you don't pronounce names. There's a video on our YouTube channel that you can subscribe to. And it's, I put it together, it's called Pronouncing Old Testament Names. And it's a five minute video and I just walk you through. Here's how you pronounce Old Testament names. It's very easy. If you remember just like three or four basic rules. Very easy. So, shameless plug. <clears throat> from there, they moved on and they camped in the Zered Valley. They set out from there and they camped alongside the Arnon, which is in the desert extending into Amorite territory. Now, that's where your ears should perk up. Amorite territory. Amorites were the people that the spies were scared of that got them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years to begin with. We can't take the land. The Amorites are there. The Canaanites are there. So now they're starting, this, is, this generation is getting a chance to, they're getting a do-over. There's a 40-year wait, but they're getting a do-over. They set out from there and camped alongside the Arnon, which is in the desert extending to the Amorite territory. The Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. That's why the book of the Wars of the Lord says, Wahab in Sufa and the ravines, and Arna, uh, the Arnon and the slopes of the ravines that lead to the site of Ar and lie along the border of Moab. What? This is, this, this is the thing. <clears throat> That's why the book of the wars of the Lord says. What's the book of the wars of the Lord? We don't know. It's lost. This is an ancient book that chronicled the wars of Yahweh, the wars of God's people, and there was, it was songs, it was epic songs that they would sing or that would describe these battles that they knew. The people reading this at the time knew that book. The author here is linking what's happening and saying, yeah, this is why that verse is in the song. Because it's taking place here. This is that spot. So it would be like if I said, um, oh, you know, those are the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. Those ramparts right there. You would all know what I'm talking about. But somebody who's not American or doesn't come from this country and doesn't know the Star Spangled Banner would not catch that reference. They don't know the song. So that's what's going on here. He's quote, there's, a, there's a song. It was a famous song. It was a famous war uh, chronicle. And he's saying, yeah, that's why it says this, because this is where we were. It's anchoring this event in the history of those people. And that's what makes the Bible different than a lot of the other religious texts in the world. For instance, I go to India every year. I teach over there. They have an entire epic poem background for Hinduism that has the, you know, the Bhagavad Gita and, and all of these stories of the gods and Shiva did this and uh, Krishna did this and this, but they're never anchored in, in history. They always take place. They're like the Greek and the Roman gods. They always take place long ago. Never at specific places, at specific times. That's what makes the Hebrew Bible very different from the, all the other religions of the ancient world. And even today from a lot of modern religions. It anchors itself in specific times, specific events. So it goes on to say, from there they continued on to Be'er. That's not beer, it's Be'er. Um, it, it's the word, it means well. It means a place where you get water from. And they, uh, the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. When did he say that? 
We've read about that in previous times. Gather the people, I'll give them water. Whenever God's and water and the people have been mentioned, there's almost always been grumbling. There's been complaining. There's been judgment. Remember, Moses has already been excluded from the promised land because he struck the rock that gave water because the people were complaining. So people, water, Moses, wilderness are not good combinations usually. So the question then is, uh uh-oh, so are the people going to complain again? Is this just another repetition of that cycle that we've grown accustomed to by now? Verse 17, then Israel sang this song. No, it's not. It's not another... They get it this time. They sing when they get to this well. They realize God is doing it. What do they sing? Spring up, O well. Sing about it. About the well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the people sank, the nobles with scepters and staffs. In other words, all the people had a hand in digging this well and, and, and celebrating it and, and widening it and making it. So God gave them this well and they received it as a gift and they all pitched in to draw water from it and to make it what it is. So this is, they're, they're, you're seeing it. They're starting to get it. They're thankful for this. Then they went from the desert to Matanay. From Matanay, they went to Nahaliel. From Nahaliel, they went to Bamoth. From Bamoth, <clears throat> From Bamoth to the valley in Moab, where the top of Pisgah overlooks the wasteland. Again, these are all place names, maybe, but they're also descriptions. Uh, Bamoth, I said Oboth meant high places. Oboth doesn't mean high places. Oboth means, uh, I believe it means signs. Um, Bamoth means high places. And Nahaliel means the river of God. And Matanah means gift. So these could be place names, they could be descriptions, we don't know. But it's giving the territory as they're making their way through this land. Then, verse 21, Israel then, uh, oh sorry, yeah, and from Bamo to the valley of Moab where the top of Pisgah, which is a mountain, overlooks the wasteland. Verse 21, Israel sent messengers to King Sihon, king of the Amorites. So now they're in Amorite territory, so they send messenger to the king, just like they did last time with Moab. They sent a message to the king of Moab. Hey, let us cross. He said, no, I'm going to come and fight you. God said, don't fight them. I didn't give you, they're not Amorites. I haven't given you their land. You go around. So they go around. Now, this is the king of the Amorites. He's going to say no. God's going to say, this is who you're sent to judge. So the Israelites sent messengers to King Sihon, uh, king of the Amorites. Let us pass through your country. We won't turn aside into any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We'll travel along the king's highway until we pass through your territory. So they don't run in guns blazing. They say, we're going to go through. We'll mind our business. Just let us through. But Sion would not let Israel pass through his territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the desert against Israel. When he reached Jahaz, he fought with Israel. Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok but only as far as the Ammonites, because their border was fortified or strong. The word strong, it could mean like cliffs and impenetrable, or it could mean fortified like military. Regardless, all of uh, the Amorite territory, all the way up to the Ammonite territory, different people. So in one fell swoop, they defeat this king, Sihon. Now Sihon was a big deal at this time. He was the Amorite king. Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them, including Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements. Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken from him all his land as far as the Arnon. 
Now, last week I talked about the Walking Dead TV show, how it's about like when society collapses, it becomes the might makes right and the strong person is the one who controls everything. So you start having these feudal concentrations of power, a feudal, F-E-U-D, not futile, feudal concentrations of power and they go to war against each other and the stronger one that wins kind of takes over and the other one that loses, too bad, because who are you going to appeal to? It's every man for himself. That's what had happened. Sihan had taken over all of this territory from the Moabites at, through force. And basically, hey, this is Sihon's territory now. Deal with it. Israel comes in. Sihon goes to attack them. This mighty army. The Ammonites are a mighty army. Israel goes. Israel destroys it. Israel puts in the sword. And Israel takes this land that Sihon had taken from the Moabites, who were distant relatives of Israel. So this is a very kind of Games of Thronish in terms of like the intrigue and the wars and the battles, or Lord of the Rings-ish, uh, if you prefer watchable stuff. Um, I mean that in the adult sense. The, the, all of the land has been taken over. And so Israel now goes in and they take it over. And then it says, this is why the poets say, what that tell us? That tells us that they're about to quote a song. Who are the poets? We don't know. They knew. They knew enough for them to quote it to go, oh, yeah, that is why the poets say what they're going to say. So this is why the poets say, Come to Heshbon and let it be rebuilt. Let Sihon's city be restored. Fire went out from Heshbon, a blaze from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Arnon's heights. Woe to you, Moab. You're destroyed, O people of Chemosh. He has given up his sons as fugitive, his daughters as captives, to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Wait a minute, why are they singing a battle song bragging about Sihon's victory over the Moabites? not. They're quoting a famous battle song that Sihon and his people sang about their defeat of the Moabites. Why? Because Israel just kicked their butts. So they're singing the fight song of the people that they just beat, ironically. Because if Sihon was able to capture all that territory from the Moabites, and Israel just came through and completely destroyed them, what does that say about Israel? in the ears or in the hearing of all the other people that they're going to go up against. So they're claiming this, and then they add a verse to it at the end. Israel adds a verse to it in. But we have overthrown them. Heshbon is destroyed all the way to Dibon. We have demolished them as far as Nopa, which extends to Medeba. So Israel sings the fight song of Sihon, and then says, but we destroyed them. Like, yeah, that's the one. That's the guy we beat. That's the guy we destroyed. So you see what's going on here? They're incorporating, the Bible is incorporating a pagan poetry, uh, a pagan poet source. It'll do that in the New Testament too. Paul does it on three different, at least two different occasions. But the point is, it's taking a well-known song about a well-known victory that one king used to brag over his fallen enemies, and Israel's taking that and saying, yeah, but we just beat that guy. So that would have given, again, these are a rabble of slaves who have lived in the desert for 40 years. Now, they, they don't have their own army fight songs. They don't have their victory ballads. They don't have their epics. They're starting to. They're starting to get it. So, it goes on to end. <clears throat> so, Israel settled in the land of the Amorites. And, and this is, again, in fulfillment of the Genesis 15 promise, or partial fulfillment. And this would happen way later. They don't settle right now. They're, they're still on the move, but this, this is kind of parenthetical. They're going to end up settling there. 
It goes on verse 32. After Moses had sent spies to Jazer, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who were there. They then turned and went up along the road towards Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, and his whole army marched out to meet them in battle at Edri. So Bashan is north of Moab. This is, this is where the northern part is still in Jordan, modern Jordan, not on the, that side of the Jordan River. But it's again uh, very fertile territory, very powerful territory. It was known for its cattle. The, the, the cows of Bashan were like a, a thing that you would quote when you wanted to talk about strength or, or wealth or fatness. Um, so this is who they're going to go up against. This, uh, the King Og apparently didn't learn the lesson that Sihon learned the hard way. So verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, don't be afraid of him. I have handed him over to you with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck down, together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land. So now what's happened in this chapter is Israel has gone on a tear up the side of the Jordan River that's in modern-day Jordan today. The Transjordan is what it's called. And first they went through and they said, hey, let us pass. We're trying to get into Canaan. And they were opposed by an Amorite. They wiped them out. They moved up. They were opposed by another Amorite king, another mighty king. They wiped him out. So now Israel controls kind of all this territory overlooking the Promised Land. And literally overlooking. If you go to the Holy Land, the Bashan and the Transjordan are high up. And then the Jordan Valley is low. And then on the other side of the Jordan Valley is the hill country, Jericho, Jerusalem, all that kind of stuff, and then the sea. So they are poised to enter the land, like overlooking it. And this is a scary thing. This is, Bashan would be part of the Golan Heights. Yeah, or close, close to each other, yeah. So this is now Israel's ready. And the book of Numbers is about to take a turn. We're now about to enter the Balaam Saga. The Balaam Saga is what is probably the most well-known part of the book of Numbers. And there's going to be a king who's been watching all this, who's been seeing what's going on with this unbeatable army of slaves, former slaves, and he's going to call in a, a hitman, a spiritual hitman. He's going to call in somebody who, who has an inroads with the gods and say, I need you to curse these people because human weapons aren't working against them. So we're going to get this whole saga about this prophet that he calls in named Balaam, who surprisingly is actually a prophet of Yahweh. He's not a pagan prophet. He's not a prophet of the other gods. He's not a prophet of Chemosh. He's not a prophet of Moloch. He's a prophet of Yahweh. And God's going to actually interact with him. It's fascinating. And that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. All right? But we got to go. We're out of time. Plenty of food left. If you want some, come grab some. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, go give, uh, grab some cards. Take them, give people, invite them here next week. Let's keep this place filled up. Have a great week, everybody.